Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 with me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari. And this week, we will be talking about the architect's role in the construction project. Today's episode covers PC1 and PC2 of the Part 3 criteria. So when it comes to the architect's role in a construction project, the first and most important aspect of um, that process is the relationship between the architect and the client. This is essentially the key relationship on a project. This does, of course, vary uh, depending on the procurement route um, chosen, but generally that's the most important relationship on a project. And given the importance of this relationship, it needs to be maintained throughout the process of the project and afterwards to enable an ongoing relationship between architect and client. So the architect needs to initially assess the benefits and risks with each prospective client. And to help assess this, it can be beneficial to put together a list of questions to query the client on uh, before the client is officially instructed. Um, So some questions may include the client's finances. Are they financially stable? Uh, Does the client have a history of withholding payment or making claims? Uh, Do they have a clear vision of their requirements and their brief? Um, Is their vision achievable in relation to time and budget expectations? Do they have a certain contractor in mind they want to work with? And have we, um, as a practice, uh, worked with that contractor before? And have we had a good experience? Um, And has the client made the required services from the architect clear? And then the architect will need to assess if they have the relevant experience and resourcing to actually undertake that project. And will the architect be required to enter into any collateral warranties or third party rights? Um, And will they be expected to be novated depending on the procurement route chosen? So depending on the responses and if the project fits with the practices business plan and the likelihood of obtaining repeat business, the architect can then assess whether to take the project on or not. So in terms of the client's expectations from the architect, so clients are typically informed that architects have knowledge and experience to define their objectives and to develop the designs that interpret the client's vision. So the client also expects that architects will secure the approvals required to enable the project to move forward and also to manage the construction phase by assisting them on selecting the most appropriate procurement route, then helping them to select the contractor, and then overseeing the coordination of the design and the integration with subcontractor design elements. And they will also expect the architect to monitor the progress, quality, and safety on site. So clients should bear in mind that Consulting an architect from the early stages of planning can be a great cost-saving strategy in both uh, the construction and operation of the building through innovative design solutions that the architect may come up with. 
and by using the architect to manage and coordinate the work of the consultants and the contractor can save the client both time and money in the longer term because you will have someone allocated to check everything through and to make sure everything aligns and it's coordinated. So in order to manage appropriate expectations, it is important for clients to protect themselves in the event an issue does arise with the project. And that is through uh, appropriately drafted schedules of services and professional appointments, ensuring each service required has been allowed for and agreed appropriately within the appointment with the architect and the other consultants. Now, when it comes to the architects themselves, so they should start by defining their services with the client. So the schedule of services is part of the architect's appointment, which sets out what they will be doing and the services offered alongside the terms and conditions of the appointment, setting out the standard the architect is expected to achieve when performing those services. So it's key for both the client and the architect that the client is aware and that they understand all the services provided by the architect, as this can be a cause for many disputes and complaints um, later on if something isn't made clear to the client. So make sure that you discuss everything beforehand with them and make sure that they do actually understand. So the architect must therefore explain their services and actions that must be taken at each REBA stage uh, carefully to the client. So um, so when this is put together and the services are drafted, um, if the RIBA standard professional services contract is used, it includes a number of different roles the architect can undertake that will need to be agreed with the client depending on the requirements of the project. So the roles the architect may be requested to undertake can include Uh, obviously the role of the architect or consultant, the role as lead designer, a role as project lead, and the role as contract administrator, and any other specialist roles such as BIM coordinator. So all these will need to be set out in the appointment documentation. Uh, But when it comes to the principal designer role, if the client is expected to be the principal designer on the project, It's not included within the RIBA standard professional services contract because the RIBA recommends that the architect should be the default choice for principal designer and this should be uh, undertaken and appointed under a separate contract. So they do provide, the RIBA does provide a separate contract if an architect does take on principal designer duties. Now, looking at the different roles the architect can undertake, starting with the project lead and lead designer. So the project lead is essentially the person that facilitates the appointment of the design team and manages the project to meet program cost and quality. Then you have the lead designer role, which is more management orientated. Um, As under that role, the architect will be expected to coordinate the design Um, by consultants, specialists and suppliers and inform the client of any significant design issues that may arise. So on the majority of projects, uh, architects will be appointed as both project lead and lead designer, but that of course does depend on the nature and the requirements of the project and its um, scale. 
So next, looking at the role of the architect as a consultant. So their duty under this role is to ensure that their designs are accurate and adequate in terms of functionality, impact and buildability. And the architect under this role is expected to exercise reasonable skill and care and to provide designs that can be built and maintained safely and are cost effective. So under this role, the architect is expected to self-manage and set out a program for each REBA stage, setting out their services, and they must be aware at all stages um, of the costs implemented by the design. And then you have, finally, you have the contract administrator role, which we covered in a previous episode, where the architect invites tenders and then appraises them with the client. So under this role, uh, the architect is expected to prepare the building contract and arrange for signatures, uh, then administer the terms of the building contract and liaise with other consultants to gather information to enable the proper administration of the contract. So depending on the nature of the project, an architect may be appointed to carry out any of the duties just mentioned. And sometimes they may be appointed to perform more than one of those roles. So now let's start to break down the architect's duties at each stage, starting with stage zero and one. So once the appointment and schedule of services has been determined and agreed between the architect and the client, the architect will then assist the client in developing their brief in the initial stages, and then will most typically be expected to uh, advise the client on the most appropriate procurement route and form of building contract. Although procurement advice is not always the architect's responsibility, and it should be clearly stated in their appointment and made clear with the client uh, whether they will have a role in this area. So the key aims to highlight to the client in assisting them to determine the most appropriate procurement route is a balance between cost, timing of completion, quality of construction, risk sharing and client control over design. So if the architect is expected to advise on procurement, their duties will involve in advising on required amendments to the contract terms to suit the needs of the project or the client. Also, they may advise on optional clauses available within the contract and also potentially advise on the need for the client to take further specialized legal advice. So the architect's duty to exercise reasonable skill and care expects them to provide and explain to the client the different routes and number of options in order to enable the client to make an informed decision. So if the client decides on a route and then it becomes apparent that uh, that route is no longer suitable, the architect will then need to bring this to the client's attention and advise them on the best way forward. Now, looking at the architect's duties uh, under stages two and three, so their duties may expand to advise or provide information on a number of other elements, one of which may be cost. So under such circumstances, the architect may be expected to provide information for cost planning and potentially to even make provisions for the initial cost estimates and revise these during the course of the project. So instead of a cost consultant, the architect may take this on or assist the client finding a suitable cost consultant. Although it's probably best to um, not take on this role, but if 
the architect is required to do so, it may be wise them appointing their own cost consultant to assist. Uh, it is, of course, very rare that the architect will be expected or requested to take on this role, but just to be on the safe side and for them to be sure that their costings are accurate, then it would be wise to appoint their own cost consultant to assist. So another key role the architect has within a project and towards their client under stage two and three is with regards to health and safety legislation. So the architect will be expected to advise the client on their duties under the CDM regulations and under the health and safety legislation. So they are also expected to comply with their own duties as designer under CDM and potentially the principal designer duties. Then you have the architect's duties in relation to compliance with statutory requirements, which involves the architect's obligation to apply for any necessary statutory consents and approvals, such as planning permission. So the architect will be expected to advise the client with regards to what planning permission will be required, which other consultants may be required to be appointed to assist with the application, and what is the best route in obtaining consent. The architect should also make sure to advise the client of likely timeframes and costs uh, with such application. So it is of great importance that the client understands that no architect can warrant, undertake or guarantee that they will obtain planning permission as such decisions are made by the local authority and are outside the architect's reasonable control. So the architect's responsibility when it comes to planning applications is to ensure their accuracy as they may be liable to the client for losses incurred if the permission is not granted because the architect failed to exercise reasonable skill and care. Now, when permission is granted, the architect should be wary of any deviations from the consented project during construction because they will be required to resubmit the application if anything does change. Um, and lastly, another part of the architect's duty when it comes to planning applications is to ensure that the planning conditions placed on the project are properly discharged and communicated to the contractor who will be taking on the risk of satisfying those conditions. Now, if the project had a joint wall or boundary or structure with a neighbouring property, the architect will be expected to be aware of the requirement of the Party Wall Act 1996 and they owe a duty of care to their client to make them aware of the requirements under the Act. So the architect is expected to question and make inquiries from the client in obtaining the necessary information on the nature and extent of the works to the neighbouring party wall and to be mindful of the neighbour's interest when producing the design. So if the architect is suitably experienced, they may act as the client's party wall surveyor, but they must ensure to act impartially and find an appropriate solution for the dispute under the Act. So under such a scenario, the architect should explain the nature of taking on the party wall surveyor role and put together a separate written appointment to cover this specialist role. But if for any reason uh, the architect feels they won't be able to maintain impartiality, then they should resign from the role and should suggest to the client that they engage someone else for that role. 
Now let's uh, set out the architect's duty in general as a designer towards the client. So the architect's basic obligation to a client is to produce and develop um, a design using reasonable skill and care of the ordinary competent architect. So the architect should never accept an absolute obligation in relation to their design because some clients may expect the architect to guarantee a specific outcome by warranting their design will be fit for purpose. So under this process, the architect simply can't uh, guarantee this and their PI policy will not cover such a claim. So when specifying materials and workmanship must be such that it will be supported by a responsible body of their peers. So the design must be buildable, for example, design constructed by a building contractor with skill and experience that might reasonably be expected of them. So if the architect made unrealistic assumptions about the workmanship required to build out the design, they would be deemed as having performed negligently. So the architect will need to exercise reasonable uh, skill and care in verifying the assumptions their design was based on or making it clear to the client that additional information will be required to verify the assumptions. But in the case where an architect bases and relies their design on information provided by a specialist, this may result in discharging the architect's duty to use reasonable skill and care in producing their own design, but only if it was reasonable for the architect to have relied on the advice of the specialist for their design in the first place. So the architect's duty also continues during construction. For example, if the architect is engaged to perform site inspections, they will be expected to use reasonable skill and care when reviewing their design on site and making sure it will work in practice and correct any errors spotted during the site visits and issuing instruction to the contractor for remedial works. So if the architect fails on their duty to review and act if they spot something crucial on site, they will be deemed to have acted negligently. Which leads on to the duties of the architect at stage four. So typically the first item at stage four the architect is expected to tackle is the building regulations submission. So it is the architect's duty to advise the client which building regulations the project will have to comply with and if building regulations approval is required in general. So similarly with planning permissions, the architect mustn't accept the obligation of obtaining building regulations approval as this is something outside the architect's control as with planning permission. So the architect will be expected to advise the client on the most appropriate service to use for building control, which is either through the relevant local authority or an approved uh, private building inspector engaged by the client. And the architect will also have to advise the client on the most appropriate procedure to follow, which is either a building notice or the full plans process. So depending on the job and relevance of each process to the specific project, the architect will need to advise the client on which route to follow that suits the project and also to advise on the timings and costs of the different processes. So once the building regulations process is decided, the next stage is the tender process and choosing the most appropriate form of building contract, which will depend on the client's priorities in terms of time, cost and quality. 
So at this stage, the architect will be expected to prepare production information in sufficient detail to enable the tenders to be obtained. So when producing the documentation, the architect must bear in mind the client's budget, the program, which other parties will need to be engaged, the other parties' roles and responsibilities, and which building contract and procurement route should be used. So the architect will have the role of assisting the client to appraise the tenders and provide a recommendation to the client of the most suitable tender, although sometimes the client may not seek the architect's advice on this. So the architect's duty of reasonable skill and care in this context is to provide advice that is logically supported and the architect should check the contractor's skill, their capacity, experience, reputation and insurance cover and present these to the client in the form of a report to enable them to make an informed decision. And it is the architect's responsibility to make sure the client understands the rules of acceptance of the contractor's tender. And then moving to stage five, covers the architect's duties during construction and their duty to inspect. So the architect's services at this stage may include a duty to visit the construction works, to check on progress and quality, coordinate with other consultants and the contractor, and provide comments and approvals as required or necessary, and gather information needed for the contract administrator role duties if the architect does undertake those duties. So a key thing to remember with site visits is that the architect should not agree to a service of supervision of the works, but inspection. So the key difference is that under supervision, the architect may be involved in giving directions on how the work should be carried out, which the architect ordinarily has no authority to do so and opens up the architect to potential claims, risks, and many other issues. So it's best the architect sticks to site inspections, which is an onerous enough duty, and should be tailored to the specific project and the frequency of visits will depend on the stage reached in the works. So each visit should have a definite purpose and vary the times or dates of inspections. So in carrying out their inspections, as with all their other duties, architects are expected to exercise reasonable skill and care and should therefore aim before and at each visit to gather the relevant information beforehand, estimate how often they will need to visit and what they will be looking for at each visit. Uh, So this will help them identify the appropriateness of level of detail required when inspecting a particular element and to assess the actions required when they return to the office. So the key question architects must ask themselves before and after each visit is, would a reasonable body of architects have discharged their inspection duty in the same way? And then keep a thorough log of their site inspections set out in a chronological order in case their actions are ever questioned or end up in court. And then last but not least, the architect's duties at stage six and seven. So during the post-completion phase, the architect will be advising the client in relation to the resolution of defects and final inspections required and making clear that the architect is not responsible for the defects found at these inspections and the architect is not assuming responsibility for the work of others. 
So at stage six, the architect will also have a role in settling or providing information to others to enable them to settle the final account. And then at stage seven, the architect may be required to advise in relation to the operation and maintenance manual of the completed building. And it is good practice for the architect to debrief the client on how the building is performing post-occupation and seek feedback from the client on how the architect and other members of the project team performed during the course of the building. So this is a good way for the architect to manage their legal risk in potential warnings of dissatisfaction of the client in potentially bringing a claim against the architect. So this process helps the architect manage the client's expectations and to prevent perceived problems from turning into claims. So to sum up what I discussed today, it is key for architects to keep good relationships with their clients throughout the process if they are to obtain repeat business from that client. So client relationships are key. The architect must therefore keep be clear from the outset with the services and roles to be provided to the client and to keep them updated and informed of these throughout the process to make sure the client understands what to expect from the architect at each stage. So these services and roles need to be set out and agreed with the client within the appointment from the outset. So at each REBA stage, the architect will be undertaking different duties. At stage zero and one, they will assist with the brief and potential procurement route based on the nature and requirements of the project. At stage two and three, the architect is expected to comply with statutory requirements and prepare and submit the planning application. At stage four, the architect is expected to prepare, advise the client and submit bidding regulations and assist with the tender process and documentation. At stage five, the architect's duty is to carry out periodic uh, site inspections and to check on progress and quality, uh, coordinate with other consultants and the contractor, provide comments and approvals as required or necessary, and to gather information needed for the CA role duties. And at stage six and seven, the architect's duties involve advising the client of the defects and final inspections and debriefing them on the building's performance post-occupation and seek feedback from the client on how the architect and the other members of the project team performed during the course of the building. So that covers what I wanted to discuss today. Um, But as always, I would like to provide you guys with a scenario just to put what I just went through into context. So today's scenario involves uh, developing um, a little granny flat in your client's uh, garden with a budget of roughly 150,000 and it is expected to be finished within 18 months. So the site is in a conservation area with uh, a history of mine shafts and subsidence in the area. Your practice received some uh, informal feedback that the planning committee will would be favorable to the application. So then your practice verbally agreed with the client a fee of 9% for the stand, for a standard building contract job uh, to cover REBA stages one to seven 
and also act as contract administrator. So we are expected to draft a letter setting out the services to be provided, our understanding of the budget and the programme, how health and safety will be dealt with, any invoice points, and our approach to project management. And then you are also expected to refer to the services that won't be included within the percentage fee and how um, REBA stage zero will be dealt with and what other consultants will be needed. Then you are also expected to prepare um, a list of potential problems and what we expect the total fee to be on this job. So you would start by writing a letter to the client, uh, obviously thanking them for approaching uh, the practice for the development of the granny flat. And as initially discussed, uh, as a practice, we would recommend that the team undertake an initial concept design process to further refine the project uh, when it comes to the site being within a conservation area and the area's history of mine shafts and subsidence. So then you can say that we anticipate that this study will allow us to develop the project in further detail to allow us to apply for planning permission at REBA stage two. Then you can point them in the direction of the scope of services, which can be a separate list um, that you can append to the letter setting out everything you will be doing um, for them and at what stage. And then we can highlight that we have uh, calculated our fee uh, based on a percentage of the construction budget and ask the client if they can confirm uh, the total budget so we can make sure that we based our fee on the correct uh, sum and that the project is to be carried out within an 18-month program for both the development of the information and packages and the construction works. Then you would include uh, in the letter like a small table highlighting the fees, how they're broken down at each REBA stage and how many, how often you will be invoicing the client so they know when to expect the invoices each month. And then we can say that the percentage fee excludes um, VAT, planning application fees, statutory fees, and any in-house specialist services that we might have and that we might use. Uh, Then we can advise within the letter that additional consultancy input will be required uh, from a structural engineer to undertake specialist geological surveys of the site Uh, with regards to the mine shafts and subsidence, and also a principal contractor. So then you can uh, highlight that, assuming we will be entering into an appointment after the acknowledgement of this letter, uh, you can say that the proposed appointment would be the one from the RIBA, uh, a copy of which you can enclose and send uh, to the client for their reference. And then you can highlight their duties uh, under CDM uh, when it comes to their duties as domestic client. 
And then at the end, you can highlight that in terms of how the project will be managed uh, as architect and contract administrator, the practice um, will be setting and agreeing the brief uh, with them, determine the procurement strategy, uh, administer the contract and uh, the change control procedures, managing and processing the tender process, chairing the construction progress meetings, and issuing the progress reports, inspecting the site, managing the delivery of the project according to the program, and issuing all necessary information, reports, instructions, and certificates. So that um, concludes the letter that you send to your uh, client. And then uh, as part of the scenario, we were also expected to put together a list of potential problems and what we expect the total fee on the job to be. So that would be something that you send to your manager and you would start by saying that um, we've, we've sent the letter to the client and we've set out our services, our understanding of the budget and the program, uh, their, their CDM responsibilities, uh, intervals of invoices, um, other consultants required in our approach to um, project management. Then you can continue to um, outline the potential issues that, as a practice, we might face. That it's not so much being within a conservation area, since we heard that the application will be favourably received. Uh, but the main concern is the history of the area having uh, mine shafts and subsidence and that the problem with discovering these shafts on site will not only cause uh, delays in program, it will also mean that further expenses will be incurred by the client. So we will need to advise the client as soon as possible to undertake a drilling investigation to establish whether the house stands on solid ground and we will also need to carry out uh, a site investigation. So if the property is determined to be affected by subsidence, the client may be entitled to depreciation compensation payments and repair works. So, But the investigations to determine this can be very costly. So we should advise the client to check the local records if there were at any time previously mining activities under the site, and if so, it will be up to the structural engineer to advise on the special requirements necessary for dealing with this problem. Then uh, we can also check with the local authority if there are any records of previous uses that may be um, that may cause an issue uh, of contaminated land which will require further remediation works before uh, starting works on site. So because of that, you uh, should highlight to your manager that um, there are some concerns that the client's budget may not be um, extensive enough to cover such works, and it might be worth bringing these issues to their attention in order for them to seek either insurance for the works or increase their budget if possible and as necessary. Uh, although it may be difficult to obtain insurance for a site which might be above mine shafts um, and subsidence. So better to attempt to resolve this issue now before starting works on site and bringing this to the client's attention. 
Now, when it comes to receiving planning permission, um, we will have to consider the existing dwellings architecture so that the extension contributes positively to the character of the area. And we, as a practice, must ensure that everything is well thought through and considered to avoid any delays with gaining uh, permission and causing the client even further expenditure and delay. So we should definitely seek advice uh, from a conservation officer when it comes to the viability of the proposal. And you can conclude by uh, mentioning to your manager that uh, we would recommend that all of this is brought to the client's attention uh, since it is our duty as architects to act um, honestly and with integrity at all times uh, so that they are aware of the pos- their position and they know how to proceed and what they will do, what they will need to do next and to avoid any issues down the line uh, with us in our services. And that concludes today's episode. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more part three with me time.